This is A Confused Heap of Facts, the podcast where we have a discussion about history with the faculty of the Department of Military History and the U.S. Army Command and General Staff College. The views expressed in this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of the Department of the Army, Department of Defense, or U.S. Government. Hello, this is uh, Dr. Bill Nance of the Department of Military History, and I'm here today with uh, Dr. Jonathan Abel, Assistant Professor of History at the Command General Staff College, and today we're going to be talking about the military enlightenment. So, John, if you could start us off with what is the military enlightenment and why do we care about it? Yeah, no, that's a good good question, And, and it's all really in the title. So, pretty much everybody's familiar with the concept of the enlightenment. Uh, It's the idea that kind of around 1650, people in Western Europe started thinking about the world differently. Uh, Now, nobody agrees on what the Enlightenment is. For a very long time, we saw it as a French phenomenon, and it was centered on kind of the the great books in in capital letters, uh, the Voltaires, the Rousseaus, the Montesquieu's, the John Locke's. Um, within the last 30 years or so, people have started to suggest that there are regional enlightenments, that, you know, there's a Scottish enlightenment and an English enlightenment and a Polish enlightenment. And, and then people started moving from there to look at different groups, different interest groups, different groups by, uh, you know, race, gender, all of the kind of classic subaltern categories. And we've now reached a point where Enlightenment scholars generally say, we all kind of know the Enlightenment when we see it, we just don't agree on what it means. Uh, the best definition for kind of the modern view of it comes from a, a, a book that is um, just simply called The Enlightenment by Dorinda Utram, where she calls it a series of interlocking problems and debates. Um, and the root of it for me is being a, a French historian. To me, the Enlightenment is rooted in France. It has effects elsewhere, but primarily it is a phenomenon that takes place in France. And it's, it's centered on, on France and French culture, French politics, etc. So for me, it's about Cartesianism. It's about the idea that we're moving away from the kind of uh, medieval superstition of, of, if you want to put it in philosophical terms, occasionalism to a more ordered and reasoned concept of, of existence. Now, this is not just what the scholastics did in the medieval period where, you know, Aquinas is sitting around and he's using reason the same way Descartes did. It's, the other part of it is it's an applied phenomenon. So unlike most philosophical movements in history, the Enlightenment is about having an effect. It's not just about people who are very smart talking to each other in a room. Um, So the principle of the Enlightenment is basically use human reason to create categories of relationships. And for me, the, the, the ultimate Enlightenment philosopher is Carl Linnaeus, the Swedish taxonomist. So it's, it's this whole idea of taxonomy. Okay, I see a cat and a dog. What do they have in common? They're clearly different species, but at a certain point, they're going to merge into being, you know, they're both animals, right? So we can extend that away from biology into pretty much every category. And so it's about this process of classifying objects, phenomena, uh, thoughts in relation to each other 
And the applied part of that is that enables you to better control that information. So this is an age, it's the age of exploration, it's the age of colonization. That There's a huge amount of information available to people in Western Europe for the first time. So they need to be able to control it. And so the Enlightenment, this kind of Cartesian, you know, picture the Cartesian coordinate grid system, that enables you to overlay that onto anything. It enables you to uh, examine the land of your country and figure out how much your taxes are going to be or your uh, recruitment or your manning for your army or pretty much anything. Now, for militaries, the military enlightenment is a, is a concept that was invented about 20 years ago. And unlike most fields of historiography, we actually know when and where. Um, as far as I can tell, the person who invented the term military enlightenment is an author named Armstrong Starkey in a book about warfare in the 18th century. Um, and that, that kind of lay for, for about 20 years until the last few years, another book called The Military Enlightenment by an author named Christy Picicero picked it up again and really defined what we mean by the military enlightenment. And the idea is it's the enlightenment as applied to militaries. Now, you would think that the enlightenment would be something military writers and historians would be interested in. The problem is it's kind of gotten lost in the unfortunate but, you know, as, as you know, the unfortunate but omnipresent feud between military and non-military historians. So a lot of Enlightenment studies were done in the 60s and 70s, kind of the foundational studies, and there's a strong anti-war sentiment in uh, academia, among professors, in the academy. And so military history was not often didn't take part in these debates because of that, because it was seen to be glorifying you know, wars like Vietnam. And so nobody really looked at the Enlightenment through the lens of the military, despite the fact that it's perfect, right? The military is the single largest organ of the state. It participates in the event the state can undertake that is the most change-making, war. And because it's a perfect case study, because it generates lots of data. But nobody ever really looked at it. The military historians weren't interested because it doesn't involve any battles, really. And the, the non-military historians just did, don't want to have much to do with war. Um, so what, what Picicero does really well is she looks at it and says there's this whole series of Enlightenment ideas that are present in militaries. Um, the, the project for a perpetual peace that Voltaire was really involved in. Uh, and alongside that, the rise of international law. How do we make more or less, war less destructive? Uh, a focus on the plight of soldiers. You know, soldiers are people. How do we deal with them? How do we keep them from, you know, becoming homeless after their uh, service time, which, of course, is a contemporary problem. But it's also a modern problem. Um, how do we make more, war more efficient in, in kind of the achievement of that goal? And, of course, ultimately with war, it's about how you win. And the military enlightenment promises a lot about how to make a military more efficient. And a more efficient military, in theory, should be a more effective military. So that's kind of a general sketch of the, of the military enlightenment and, and kind of the, the foundational texts in it. Okay, so that's uh, very interesting. So you said it started in the 60s and the 70s uh, is when we actually started talking about it as a military enlightenment and the enlightenment. So before that, Obviously, there were military histories of the 18th century before that point. 
And obviously there were social histories prior to that point. So why did we not make the connection before this obvious disconnect? Yeah, and that's a, that's a really good question. And it's a, that's a really instructive kind of um, series of events for historians and, and prospective historians. It, the answer is actually really simple, and in some ways it's kind of silly. Um, because the Enlightenment writers of the 60s and 70s tended to be anti-war for reasons that are perfectly understandable, right? It's the heat of Vietnam and Watergate. Um, and not just in America, right? This happens in Europe as well. Um, because they tended to look askance at war and against, askance at studies of war, we have to remember at the time, military history was essentially drums and trumpets, right? It looked pro-war. So they looked at the Enlightenment stance on military as being anti-war. So they read the writings of people like Voltaire who, who wrote in great and, and sometimes gruesome detail about what war did to people and did to people's bodies and did to societies. And they looked at that and it agreed with where they were kind of already sitting with their, their own personal views. And so they basically just ignored the military aspect of the Enlightenment. And it's not until after 2000 that you start to see people look at the Enlightenment as a phenomenon within militaries and that militaries are part of this too and it's not just enlightenment figures like voltaire saying no 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 no, war is bad we should never do that which voltaire of course didn't say but a lot of people wanted him to say so prior to the 60s how did the historiography treat the even just the general enlightenment overall yeah really what we think of as enlightenment historiography dates to um, really i mean there's ernst Cassirier in the early 20th century but really the way we think of the enlightenment is, uh, dates to Peter Gay. And Peter Gay wrote the standard treatment of the Enlightenment that is great books and great men. Um, and that's a gendered term on purpose because he ignores the women. So it's, it's Voltaire, it's Rousseau, it's, you know, it's the progress of the human spirit through this time from medieval superstition to modern rationality, right? And, and until we started looking at it from other angles, from the angles of the subalterns, from the angles of other countries, it was just kind of one narrative. And again, the narrative was the progress of humanity. So it progressed through medieval Italy, and everybody was doing banking and wearing nice clothes, that it migrated to France and France of Louis XIV, and everything was great. Uh, despite the fact that he, he fought a lot of wars, and then it migrated to England, and we did more banking, and you know, the Pax Britannica and all that. And it's not until you kind of deconstruct those accreted myths, and Gay, of course, is not inventing that. Gay is drawing on that very long, um, you know, pre-historiography idea, uh, you know, pre-Ronkian empiricism of, of just the idea that history is the progress of your own people. And it's not until we start to deconstruct that after, and once we get into the 70s and 80s, that we start to really see that, you know, Utram is right. This is a series of problems and debates that, that don't necessarily produce an end state, but do all have the same goal, which is the betterment of humanity through the application of reason. Okay, so for the contemporary Enlightenment scholars, did they view themselves as living in the Enlightenment? Did they view themselves as living in a different age uh, than their than their predecessors? And uh, did they? They obviously did not necessarily call it the Enlightenment. So what did they call it? Yeah, that's an interesting question. Um, the The short answer is they actually did. The Enlightenment is one of the few times where where we're not using language imposed by modern people. 
the the writers, the Rousseaus, the Diderots, the Voltaires, uh, they were referred to as the enlightened. The French term is lumière, which just means light. Um, they were also referred to as philosophes, philosophers. Now we use that term in modern English very generally, uh, but specifically if you were somebody who followed this kind of post-Cartesian thought idea, especially in the 18th century, uh, you were called a philosophe, you were called a lumière, and, and they, they specifically, the French specifically use the word, the term enlightenment. Um, whether that's a, again, one of the big names, the Voltaire types, whether it's one of the more radical philosophers like a Pierre Bale, or whether it's a military philosophe like a Guibert or a Folar, they use the same terms too. They're, they're steeped in this discourse of enlightenment. Okay, so they're using this term themselves. And we, in, our mo in the modern era, have kind of separated out the Enlightenment versus the military Enlightenment. But from what you'd mentioned earlier, and just I'd like you to kind of pull on the thread a little bit more, did they make the distinction between the Enlightenment and the military Enlightenment? Or for them, was it all just one big idea? Yeah, I, I think it's fair to say it was one big idea. Um, and there's a, couple, there's a couple of details of that that I think are important. For one, when we speak about these people, we're speaking about a relatively small elite, right? So literacy rates in France in the 18th century may be 30%. And of course, a big chunk of those are people who, you know, they're functionally literate, but they can read a contract and that's it, right? They're not reading works of philosophy. So for the people we consider to be enlightenment thinkers or philosophes, those are the people who are attending the Salon, these, these meetings where, where these different people came together and they shared ideas. Um, they're associating with each other in the public spaces of Paris in particular, the Palais Royal, places like that. They're going to the theater, they're going to the opera. It really is kind of an elite. Um, it, it's, it's, a, it's an elite of birth because almost all of them are nobles, although not exclusively so. Voltaire, a great example. Um, but it's certainly an elite of education and thought and so social access. So, so they saw themselves as the enlightened. Now, they generally didn't refer to themselves that way. Um, there's, there's, there's a sense of modesty in presentation, even for the French, um, that pretty much everybody abides by. But they certainly referred to each other as enlightened or as philosophes or as, as lights, as lumières. Um, at the same time, they did specialize. So a lot of people who are involved in public discourse in the 18th century in France are lawyers. They're people who are trained as, as one of, there's a lot of different types of lawyers. Um, but, but they come up through the Parlement, particularly the Parlement of Paris. And of course, they deal with law. Uh, the person who best embodies that is Montesquieu. Montesquieu is a lawyer. His spirit of the laws, I mean, it's a legal system that he builds, right? Very briefly, for the benefit of our listeners, uh, could you please define Parlement for us? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. Uh, I forget sometimes I'm not always talking 18th century French historians. Yeah, a Parlement, despite the name, is not a parliament. Um, it is actually a law court. There are usually 13 of them in France, and they are essentially the appellate courts. So think the district appellate courts in the United States. In the 18th century, they tried to take on a legislative role. Um, they, they decided, they kind of named themselves as the body that should be the check on the king. They should have the final right to approve uh, edicts. They want to make edicts legislation. 
uh, and and there's there's hundreds of members of each parliament. The parliament of Paris covers about a third of the country. Most of the rest are in kind of the regions. So there's one in Ix in the south. There's one in Dijon. Um, from America, there's one in Nantes. And they tend to be uh, nuclei of regional resistance to royal power. Now so, is, so they're lawyers. So is this arrogation of power basically taking on the, uh, the actual parliamentary role or legislative role, is this a result of Enlightenment thinking? Is this producing Enlightenment thinking, or is the answer yes? Yeah, the answer is yes. The other aspect we have to consider is a lot of Enlightenment, French Enlightenment thinkers were very fond of England. They liked the English system. They saw it as far more rational than their own. Um, so the Parlementaire are looking at England and they're saying, hey, these guys did this back in you know the 11th and 12th centuries. They took the power away from the king. Never mind those nobles who did that. So they want to set themselves up just like the model parliament of, what is it, 1295. Um, now they're really in it for their own power. They're not, you know, looking out for the interests of the French people. So, you know, Montesquieu comes out of this world, and Montesquieu writes legal history. Also writes travel uh, novels, which are very popular in the time. Uh, but he only deals with legal stuff. He doesn't really touch a lot of other stuff. He he kind of paints around the corners of talking about war, but he really he's really concerned about politics. Uh, you know, Rousseau, a lot of high politics, a lot of the kind of daily lives of people. And uh, he wrote actually a lot of his important thought in novels, particularly Julie and Amélie, uh, Rousseau invented childhood. Um, and, and you don't see a lot of crossover. So yes, Voltaire talks about war. And the, 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 the Enlightenment figures who write the encyclopedia, which first appears in, or in 1750s, you know, there's articles on war, but those are written by somebody who knows war. It's not, you know, it's not Diderot or it's not D'Alembert, the mathematician, wandering in to talk about war. People tend to stay to the areas they know. Um, now that's wider than normal. We tend to forget Voltaire was a was a philosopher, but he was also a doctor. He was also a physicist. Um, he helped to discover the mechanism of combustion during this period. Uh, so. When we talk about a military enlightenment, we are imposing a distinction. It's, it's not so much a distinction between military enlightenment it's an enlightenment. It's that the military enlightenment is a subset of the enlightenment. But it fits the way that writers interacted with each other at the time. Because if you worked in the military, if you wrote military theory, which appears in France in the 1720s, you are a military philosoph. And Guibert was referred to as that. Um, he, was, he was one of the few, but uh, he certainly was. You generally didn't write on other issues, and vice versa. Um, so there's a growing sense also of what will later emerge, uh, you know, much later in America as this kind of business progressivism idea, right? The experts do expert things. Um, I guess you can trace that back to scholastic thought. But, but the idea is that we are imposing a taxonomy, it's very enlightened, right? We are imposing a taxonomy that reflects the reality. That actually occurred to me is that, that whereas they may not have addressed themselves fully by that, they would certainly approve of uh, further uh, subdividing and classifying. Right. So let's just kind of play with the overall idea of the Enlightenment for just a little bit of time. So you're talking 18th century France, so the 1700s during this time frame. Now, this is a very formative uh, period of time for the United States, and, or at that time, the English colonies that will become the United States. But there's a, there's a relationship there between the French Enlightenment 
and then English common law and the English philosophy as well. Can you speak for just a minute and how that those two systems and philosophies kind of interacted with each other? Yeah, and I will caveat this um, for our listeners. I am not an Americanist, uh, so I'll, I'll kind of paint this uh, very broadly. Um, I would argue that England does not have an enlightenment because England does not need an enlightenment. The, one of the reasons why we struggle to define the tenets of the Enlightenment is, in France, the Enlightenment is fundamentally about politics. It's about what kind of political system you have. Well, that doesn't apply to England because England doesn't have an absolutist monarchy. They have a representative monarchy. You know, it's very narrowly representative, right? But they have these rights of Englishmen that appear in the, in the 1680s. It's kind of, you know, the Lockean ideal. They have... They don't really have a separation of powers, but they kind of do. It's, it's going to evolve into a unicameral authoritative system. But at the time, it's kind of a balance between parliament and the king. So the French are looking at that, and they want something like that. Remember, there's no civil rights in France. There's no right of appeal. The king can throw you in prison for whatever reason. It's called a lettre de cachet. He used it frequently. Not, not really in a way that's tyrannical, but just in, to manage his government. Um, when he, when, you know, you didn't get fired. You, you were exiled. Um, and, and they're all looking at England, particularly Voltaire and, and Montesquieu, and they're, they're saying our own system is bad by comparison. So this plays really well in the American colonies, uh, with the exception of like Georgia, which had problems with the First Nations people down there, so they, they need royal protection. But the more literate colonies, the older colonies, you know, the Bostons, the, the Philadelphias, they are part of the Enlightenment. And so they're reading, you know, they're reading John Locke, they're reading Adam Smith eventually, uh, although I don't think he publishes until 1775. Um, but they're also reading the French. And it's a very, you know, America is probably the most literate, certainly most literate set of colonies in the world and one of the most literate societies in the world at the time. So they're, they're taking in these ideas, they're taking in these principles that people deserve a rational government. And it's all out of Aristotle, right? Montesquieu interprets Aristotle for the 18th century. And Montesquieu takes from Aristotle and says, tyranny is a government against reason. Doesn't matter what kind of government, as long as it violates the tenets of reason. And so the, the American patriots, the radicals there, take that idea and say, you're right, Montesquieu. You're right, Rousseau. It's not enough that we have these rights. It's not enough that we're represented in Parliament. They were represented. They didn't have direct representation, but they were still represented in Parliament. We want to govern ourselves. And again, selfish interests, right? Just like the Parlementaire. So there are the seeds of radicalism are within this. And, and if we want to go down the historiographical rabbit hole, um, there's a scholar named Jonathan Israel whose argument is the Enlightenment is fundamentally radical. It's about not just being skeptical of religion, it's about being an atheist. It's not just being, you know, well, we need a better government. It's tearing your government out by the roots. So that's that, that, there's a school of thought to that too. And you actually see some echoes of this with the what you really call the apotheosis of the French of the Enlightenment, which is the French Revolution. Kind yeah, of that moment there. Yeah, and one of the really difficult things about studying this period, I, I started as a as a kind of Napoleonic era scholar, and I've drifted backwards in time. One of the problems of the 18th century in France is everybody's looking forward to the revolution, and I mean every historian. So so many histories you read, so many biographies of figures in the 18th century. It's just waiting for the revolution. 
we don't take this period for what it is. We take it for what it's going to become. And yes, there are obvious seeds, right? The revolution doesn't come out of nowhere. And yet, people at the time didn't know that, and the revolution is not an inevitable conclusion to what's happening, right? Because again, England had its own revolution. Yes, it involved a lot of violence, but it wasn't the French Revolution. So, and the, what's interesting is let's take a look at. So, we have the American colonies over on, over to the west. You have basically the waiting for the what would become the French Revolution, mm-hmm. and then you also have many Enlightenment scholars, uh, rather uh, common attraction with monarchs like Frederick the Great. Uh, the the common term used still in many popular histories is the Enlightened Despot. So, could right. you kind of explain how you get somebody that is about as dictatorial as you get, end up being somebody an, an object of admiration. Yeah, that's a that's an excellent question. So, the the philosophes were constantly looking out for a person who could be the Enlightenment figure, and a lot of them found that figure in Peter the First of Russia. So he's an autocrat, and of course the Russian czars are the autocrats of autocrats. Um, and there's, Russia is questionably European. It's, it's, it's othered in such a way that it's not, you know, certainly not Western Europe. But Peter, of course, is the one who makes the, the nobles shave their beards and, and behave like proper Western Europeans, moves the capital to St. Petersburg out of the, you know, the, the old capital of Moscow. Um, and so a lot of people look at him at the time as this kind of paragon, that he is taking these ideas to heart and he's implementing them. And of course, there's a lot of ego involved in this, right? There are ideas. Look at this Russian. He's following what we're saying to do. He's a good person. And then that kind of drifts for a while. There's people who think Carl Twelfth of Sweden might do that until he gets himself shot. Um, and then Friedrich, the, the, at the time, the crown prince of Prussia, he is seen as the, the great hope for the Enlightenment. He is an Enlightenment figure in his youth. He surrounds himself at his palace at Rheinsberg with Enlightenment figures. He cozies up to Voltaire. Eventually he's going to be a correspondent of of D'Alembert, among others. Uh, D'Alembert the mathematician. And it seems like he will implement the kind of Enlightened government that so many people want. Now we have to understand that's not a modern government. A lot of Enlightenment people didn't necessarily want, you know, representative democracy or whatever. That was, that was Rousseau. That's, a, that's its own category. Most Enlightenment writers, and particularly most Enlightenment French writers, were perfectly okay with what we might recognize as a dictatorship. Remember, as Montesquieu defined it, tyranny is rule against reason. It's not rule against, you know, the individual or democracy or whatever. And in fact, if you, if you go back to Aristotle, democracy itself is a tyranny. It's the tyranny of the mob, right? So in some ways, the idea of an absolutist king can be very enlightened if he rules by reason, if he puts into place modernizing reforms, right? The problem is, we find out immediately when Friedrich II takes the throne in 1740, he's not an enlightened monarch. He's a warmonger. He starts three wars um, for no reason, for his own aggrandizement. He throws Voltaire in prison at one point. So he, the philosophers very quickly sour on him. 
and then they they drift over to Joseph I, who becomes the Holy Roman, Roman Emperor later, and then and then the, the revolution happens. So we you know. So you're hitting on actually uh, two out of the the famous three elements of the the Clausewitzian Trinity, right? Which is, and of course Clausewitz is a later product, but still a product of this, which mm-hmm. is the government is the form of reason. Yep. And the people are the form of irrationality, um, yeah. passion. And, and Clausewitz is a figure of the Enlightenment. The, the, the Enlightenment does not reach Germany until the revolution starts. Uh, it's called the Aufklärung. Uh, it doesn't look like the French Enlightenment. There's a counter-enlightenment quickly, which is where we get, um, in, among other movements, romanticism, the emphasis on the person and irrationality. Um, but yeah, Clausewitz is a figure of the Enlightenment. He is a philosopher just as much as Voltaire is. Um, slightly less coherent, but it is what it is. I, uh, I like Clausewitz, at least the first look, couple chapters. Mm-hmm. So... But that, uh, that, because that's interesting, right? It's because now we're actually kind of digging into not just the Enlightenment as a whole, but now we're kind of dialing in on actually what we would call as the military Enlightenment. And we're starting with Clausewitz. Of course, any uh, any good uh, course of the Command General Staff College, we're going to start with our, with our Clausewitz. Right. And so Clausewitz is kind of a central figure. But who else kind of fits into this kind of pantheon of, enla- of military enlightenment thinkers? Yeah, and that's a, that's a really good question. Uh, it's actually a relatively small library, particularly compared to the, to the wider enlightenment where lots of people weighed in. And, you know, we focus on the Voltaires and the Rousseaus, but there's so many people writing. The, the military enlightenment, as I would define it, begins in the 1720s with a writer named Folar. And Folar is an old general by this point. Um, he's actually a Jansenist convulsionnaire, which is a whole other bag of uh, some feral animal. Um, but Folar looks at the French army after the seven. Uh, excuse me, after the Spanish succession. We have to remember the 18th century is an age of war. But between 1715 and, with a brief exception, the late 17-teens, there's not a major war until 1733. So a generation of French people are growing up without war. So he's looking in the middle of this era and saying, we've lost a step. We no longer have veterans around to train the new generation. More importantly, he's looking at it through this lens of the Enlightenment. He's saying, our army looks too medieval. We need to make it better. We need to improve it by giving it what he would refer to as a constitution, what we would refer to as doctrine. And it's from Folar that every subsequent military enlightenment thinker follows, first in France and then spreading to the rest of Europe. Um, now, I, I can't speak outside Europe, um, but generally it, it all stems from that. Now, the Prussians have their own tradition. Generally, they're held within the state. But as nearly as I can tell, the Prussians do not have an impact outside Prussia. So in some ways, we're kind of accepting Prussia from this discussion. But what Folar does is Folar reaches back to the Romans, the Greeks and Romans. And, and neoclassicism is a really important part of the Enlightenment in France. Everybody wants to be Roman. Uh, Roman Republican, by the way, because the Republic was rational. The Empire was irrational. It was an irrational tyranny. So they look back at the Republic, and, and what Folar says is, we need to go backwards. The, you know, the, these, these muskets, they're, all, they're well and good. We need more pikes. Now, everybody at the time knew this was stupid, um, and they said so in great numbers. 
the tradition in France at the time was people wrote to the war ministry. They wrote memos about what was happening, what was happening in war, what was happening in, at training, um, and war department archives are full of these, most of them in terrible handwriting. So everybody wrote and said, Folar is stupid. He doesn't, you know, this is not a, this is not a good idea. Except they liked what he was doing by trying to create this constitution. Not just saying what, you know, Frontinus said, which is, if you want to be a good general, read Caesar and, like, talk to your men. It's, Folar is going far beyond that. He's saying, we need a systematic Cartesian doctrine for our army. And lots of people pick that up. Um, there's other there's people who follow Falar who say the genius of the French is in attacking. Uh, we need more bayonets. We need more pikes. Probably the most famous of that is a guy named Menil Dehon, who picks up Falar's kind of torch. Falar dies pretty quickly after he publishes, but Menil Dehon picks it up and runs with it for the rest of the of the, of the century. Um, there's other people who kind of fall on the other side. They say no, no, no. These these muskets are actually a thing and we don't need to charge into them. Instead, we need to get better at firing them. So to be better at firing a musket with an effective range of, you know, 100 yards, 200 yards, you need to be able to stand in a line, fire quickly, and move as a unit, right? And that requires a lot of discipline. You gotta take these, you know, peasants and urban artisans and make them work together. Basically, we need to be more like Prussia, right? Which, where the soldiers are automatons in the hands of the king, um, which is not far off the truth. So, of course, that offends French national character, as they would say it. And there's this huge fight over what system they should use and how this should work. Lots of people weigh in. Um, there's plenty of authors during this period. And, and then after this, so Menil de Hon is kind of the reigning authority during the Seven Years' War and after. And then this guy named Guibert shows up. Um, and Guibert says, hang on, like, this debate is great, but we need to figure out how to make this work. So he writes, and he works with his father, who's what we would call a staff officer, and they come up with a system where it's both. It's not any one system, it's instead a doctrine in the modern sense um, where the commander chooses the formation that works. And along the way, there, so there's people writing, but there's also a lot of practice. This is the other side of the military enlightenment, because again, this is not just people sitting around talking, it's doing. And so what they do is, in the 1730s, they start pulling together what they call training camps, um, which look a whole lot like the modern U.S. Army NTC, where you take a big formation out and you maneuver it. And, and you know, it takes a lot of money and time and effort to maneuver big formations. We're talking tens of thousands of men for a month. Um, some of the camps, and maybe as many as 40,000 men. That's a lot of people to move across a country. So they're doing this in peacetime, and what they're noticing is all of these Enlightenment principles are absolutely right. So this is a time when war is fought by men in pretty small formations. I mean, physically small. A lot of men packed into a tight space, the kind of grid squares, right? Ranks and files. To be able to maneuver in combat under fire, you have to stay in those units. Uh, Battalion-sized blocks that turn into the building blocks of the army, right? This is really cumbersome. It's, it's, it's really time-consuming to get these people to move at the same time into the same place. Well, the problem is they don't have a set parade step, march step, run step, or set formations. And there's a science to this. Right. 
So the, what, the, the, in, when I say that their army is medieval, that's true. Regiments are owned by whatever family they're named after, um, and that could be a 12-year-old who is often the colonel of the regiment. And the highest level of organization was the regiment. So there's no one sitting back in Paris writing doctrine manuals that saying everybody's going to march at this step. They do that in 1755. They issue a series of regulations that say everybody's going to march around 80 steps a minute, which is slow compared to the modern march, but that's, that's what they settled on. So that's a very simple change with profound implications. Because if everybody's following the same set of standard basic rules, now you can build from that. You don't have to get the army together in the spring before the fighting in the summer and say, all right, here's the step we're going to march at, and here's our basic formations. Now, every time you're in training camp, you can practice that, and we get together for war, it's all quick. That's and, the application of the military enlightenment. And this is something that we just take for granted today. Yeah, and one of the things about studying the pre-modern past, and, and now we consider myself a pre-modernist, um, early modernist, is that's exactly right. There's so much that we take for granted that didn't exist at the time, right? And and you know, in the modern, in any modern military, you can find all of the stuff that somebody has spent a great deal of time and effort and energy writing, and everybody's going to abide by it. But at the time, that was a new idea, and new ideas have to come from somewhere, right? And just because it's obvious in hindsight doesn't mean it was obvious before it was implemented. And so that's why I think the military enlightenment is so fascinating. It's, it's people like, uh, you know, Folar and Guibert who have these kind of, you know, light bulb moments. But unlike a, unlike a Rousseau, who, you know, spent a lot of his life in exile, abandoning his children, they immediately turn around and hand it to the army. And somebody's going to get those 40,000 dudes together, and they're going to go try it. Uh, the most famous example of this happens in 1778, uh, actually, in the run-up to um, France joining the American Independence War. There's a big camp on the northeast frontier uh, in, in, in Normandy. Well, not more like the northern frontier. Um, and the whole point is they're going to test these different systems. Manuel Duhon is there. Guibert is there. And the, the test decisively proves that the big block, like pike-type formations, don't work. They're just, they're not fast enough. And they get shredded by artillery fire, as you might imagine. Um, and field artillery has started to become a thing. So, so they see in the practice that this does not work. And, and what they do is they then turn around and write better regulations. Uh, and material science is also improving, right? So the weight of artillery, we're going to cut it in half. We're going to make artillery that doesn't explode next to your gunners, which is a perk in an artillery piece. Um, so, you know, it's, it's, and these things are, 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 are cumulative. Uh, if you're familiar with the Kurzweil curve, it's the idea that, that progress is exponential. Like you don't need to reinvent a hammer every time you need to build a shelf, right? So once, you know, once we make this, this small change, we're all going to march the same step. Every change after that is going to be magnified, right? And what you're really talking about is applying the scientific method yeah. to military training and, uh, and maneuvers. Yeah, and that's exactly it. it. The scientific method, the modern scientific method, is essentially a distillation of Cartesian rationality because it's not just about thinking. It's about doing. And that's, that's, what the enlighten, that's what distinguishes the Enlightenment from the rational philosophers who preceded it. Were they also getting uh, reports back from the battlefield, such as, okay, we have the camps, 
that's great, but you can't ever get everything done in a training camp. Sometimes it's not till you have a thinking opponent who's trying very hard to win that you see the holes in your own system. So are they yeah. getting those reports back as well? The, the short answer is no, and for reasons that have kind of escaped uh, historians up till now. So the war archives are full of these memos that are written in peacetime. It, you know, a fortress commander takes his battalion out and they exercise and people write memos. The local nobles show up to watch, they write their own memos because they're all commanders, right? Um, it, you know, every now and then in peacetime, it's usually once a year, but after the Seven Years' of War, they're kind of broke, so it happens like once. Uh, they'll pull together the big exercises, usually around the fortress of Metz in the northeast. Um, the commander of Metz is generally seen as kind of the senior um, army officer, uh, field officer, not, not from the court. Um, and so you get lots of reports from the peacetime. The problem is when you get into war, a couple of things happen. One, your professional soldiery gets diluted, right? Because a lot of them die. It's that simple. And two, it's really hard to convince these people to actually follow the rules. It's one thing to have the rules. It's another thing to execute <laughs> them, right? And it, it's important to remember this. The officer corps are, by definition, amateurs. They are not compensated for their work and it's considered to be their duty, not their job. Their job is to be a noble. Being an officer is part of that. Um, so, And they're it, also nobles. Yes. So therefore they don't really feel compelled to follow those of lesser folks. Yeah, and it, this is an interesting push-pull. For so long, we fell into the trap of thinking the nobles are the recidivists, right? The nobles just want to be the guy with a sword riding into massed English art, you know, archery fire in, in 1350. What we found out in the last 30 years or so, really more like the last 40 years, is the nobles actually are the leaders of the Enlightenment. They're the ones who go to their fellow nobles and say, hey, we need to be better. We don't deserve to be in command just because we're born to it. We also need to have these skills. Like, we need to read, we need to understand this stuff. Like, if we're in charge of guns, we maybe should, like, figure out how a gun fires, that kind of thing. Um, and, of course, there are, there are the recidivists, right? There's, there's, <laughs> there's There always are. Right, there's always <laughs> critics. Um, but but it's, it's always loyal opposition. They, they honestly want what's best for France. And, and they, they disagree on the method, but they don't disagree on the end point. Um, and so it's, it's the flip side of that is what you brought up. Every noble sees himself as being ranked in a certain place in the hierarchy, right? They really don't like being told what to do. They really don't like being told what to do by another noble. And so what the kings have to do is they appoint a marshal. And a marshal is the only person other than the king himself who has the right to command other nobles, including princes of the blood, relatives of the king. The princes of the blood really don't like that. Uh, and what you actually see Louis XV do, who, he's king from 1715 to 1774, he actually goes to the front sometimes when there are, when there are these rank disputes. Uh, so, for example, during Maurice de Saxe's great campaigns in the Low Countries uh, in the 1740s, Louis is actually there. He is the one technically commanding the army, and, and Maurice is standing next to him as his, you know, bastard son of the elector of Saxony as his marshal. Uh, but at the lower level, you can, you can understand, 
you know, having having been in service, you can probably understand far better than I do that sometimes when you put colonels next to each other, they don't always agree to do the same thing, right? It doesn't matter if it's colonels, generals, or privates. Right. And if you're trying to establish a hierarchy, imagine you have a field army of 80,000 men. It's the highest echelon is the regiment. So when you pull your commanders together, you might have 80 colonels in your headquarters tent. You going to get them all to all agree to do the same thing? So the wars actually weirdly are less instructive than peacetime. And some of that has to do with the fact that if you're marching around on a drill field, uh, there's no smoke. There's no fog, right? You can't always see what's happening on a battlefield. And so it's harder for observers to observe. It's harder for them to figure out what happened. Um, and this is actually one of the weird deficits in, in 18th century historiography, particularly on the, the, the French uh, Anglophone side. We don't actually have that many reliable accounts of battles down to the kind of the granular level. Um, we have staff reports, and this is kind of the age where military history is starting to be written, uh, you know, detailed campaign accounts. Um, but we don't actually have as many as people might think. A lot of them have to be assembled from what we would call after action reports and newspaper reports and kind of memoirs much later. Um, but at the time, that stuff's not really written. It's, it's, the way they think about it is, peacetime is the time when you test and train, wartime is when you execute, but the AAR time happens during peacetime. It's kind of the opposite of the way we think about it now. And of course, as you describe it, uh, I just have this very visceral image of Clausewitz and Clausewitz talking about the fog of war, where yeah. units will literally disappear yeah. into the clouds of smoke, and something's happening, but we're not quite sure what. Yeah, and we tend to forget. We, you know, people who who listen to this podcast are probably at least vaguely familiar with Clausewitz. Um, when Clausewitz talks about the fog of war, that's literal. It can be weather fog, or it can be uh, you know, if you fire a hundred guns, guess what you get a lot of. A lot of smoke, right? And it's not until we invent smokeless powder in the late 19th century that the battlefield begins to clear a little bit and becomes kind of a metaphorical fog, um, or I guess now an electronic fog. But yeah, it's that you don't see a lot of reporting from war. Um, it's you know I I haven't quite sussed out why that is, but I think it's just the difficulty of it. And of course, you don't have observers in war. You 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 have plenty of observers attached to headquarters, and they even fight. But you don't have them sitting on a hill or in the church steeple watching the formations do their exercise like you would at a training camp. Yeah, that makes sense. So I'm going to take you in a slightly different direction now, just uh, as we uh, kind of come towards the close, but not quite there. Is We've talked a lot about units moving around, but of course one of the more famous kind of popular elements of military enlightenment as that time frame is the Tres Italian or the Valbon fortresses. Mm -hmm. So could you take a moment to describe how this is affecting military uh, building? Yeah, that's an excellent question and that's kind of the other half of the military enlightenment. So what, what you mentioned with the Tres Italian is kind of the theory of uh, Jeffrey Parker who's one of the, the eminent historians of the earlier part of this period, kind of the particularly the 17th century, 16th, 17th century. Um, and, and his theory is that modern warfare emerged as a result of a transformation in fortification, right? A medieval castle is tall because you have to keep people from scaling it. A modern fortress is low and thick because you don't want artillery punching through it. Now, his 
I think it's probably fair to say that thesis has been debunked now. But what is very much true is that siegecraft and engineering are a vital part of the military enlightenment, as you might imagine, right? It's the most technical, mathematical, rational of the emerging sciences. And so if you can build a fortress with overlapping fields of fire and strong points to defend an important position, it's absolutely worth it. The flip side of that is, hey, we got all this fancy new math, and we know gun ranges now because we can do ballistics. That means we can approach a fortress more easily. So instead of the kind of late medieval, you know, 16th century type siege where you basically just sat outside the city, what people like Vauban do and his counterpart Cohorn in, in um, the United Provinces of the Dutch Republic, they not only design the fortress, they figure out how to attack it. And so the idea is you, you follow this very scientific, it's a very rigid system. You don't innovate as an engineer. You take the plan and you follow it. You dig your trenches a certain way to a certain depth, a certain height, a certain width, a certain distance from the walls. Then you build your approach trench, do the same thing. You build your lines of circumvallation around the fortress. And it evolves to the point in, in the late um, 17th and early 18th centuries where basically in most cases if a garrison in a fortress saw the siege being properly executed they just go ahead and surrender because they knew they couldn't get out of it. Now what makes this interesting is you see fewer sieges in the 18th century in warfare. They're still important. So what Maurice de Saxe does during his campaigns from 1745 to 1748, basically he lays siege to a fortress and he detaches a task force under his subordinate, a guy named Lowendahl, to go do field battle things. And it's, it's a good combination. Um, but by and large, the siege is less important because it's easier now. Now, the really interesting thing is, all right, we've got a lot of people who've studied the military science, and that means siegecraft. What happens if we try to move men like we move engineers, soldiers like engineers? And there's an effort, particularly in France, by probably the preeminent um, military theoretician, if only by volume, a guy named Guillaume Leblanc, who wrote most of the military articles in the encyclopedia. And he basically takes siegecraft and tries to drop it into field warfare to the point where you see him drawing boxes on maps for how men are supposed to move and fire. Um, this, this, is a, this is a prominent strain, and you see a lot of um, kind of the pro-Prussian types say, well, all we have to do is draw a grid on the battlefield, right? So if you need to maneuver your men, look at that tree, draw like your secant angles and all that. Um, but again, as you know better than I do, uh, people are not machines. Shockingly. And, right. So, but you do see a strong element of that, and it makes sense. Mm -hmm. It's kind of the, the logical maybe overcommitment of Cartesian thought that... Well, if everything's a machine and it works according to certain rules and, and we know those rules, well, we can make the machine work better. But, uh, you know, as the romantics and as, as Clausewitz, the proto-romantic, will later say, well, you know, there's an irrational element here, too. And this is also one of the reasons I truly enjoy Clausewitz is that he takes those ele enlightenment elements, but then he pairs them with that romantic I don't know. Yeah, and, and Clausewitz is hardly the first person to talk about this. Yeah. You know, there are plenty of people who fire off memos to LeBlanc and say, like, you know, it's it's well and good that you, you tutor the Dauphin in military arts, like, come out here and, and be a soldier. 
Um, and then, you know, this is a hundred years before Clausewitz is writing, so they get it. They they get that there's an, a kind of an ephemeral human aspect to it. Uh, Maurice de Sachs, in his in his his book, he wrote almost exactly a hundred years before Clausewitz talks about it a lot. Um, but like Clausewitz, uh, that book is also incoherent. So it's you know, you take what you can from it. Oh, so okay, so let's kind of wrap all this up into one big piece because we've talked about the Enlightenment, we've talked to historiography, we've kind of talked where it came from, how it developed, and then we uh, kind of focused in on kind of the field battles and then just spent a little bit of time talking about the engineering. So very qu briefly, what are the long-term effects of this military enlightenment? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, kind of macro down to specific, I think in the main, the enlightenment really does shift people from a kind of occasionalist view of the world and and what I mean by occasionalism is, is a philosophical position that if something happens that you don't understand doesn't mean that there's an underlying mechanism you can't understand it means that that was inspired by you know a spirit a deity a god whatever um, we're moving away from that into a world where we believe in systematic reason not just reason but systematic reason and that's, that's the Enlightenment project as a whole. Move humanity to a place where, where it's centered in, in systematic reason, which of course is the modern um, Western European American world and, and a lot of the rest of the world too. In, in terms of the military Enlightenment, what it does in France, and it, it is a phenomenon like lots of places you can argue had Enlightenment, I'm not sure you can argue many of them had a military enlightenment. It's mostly just France, maybe some German states. What it does is it sets the stage for the armies of the revolution and Napoleon. Uh, I have argued in, in things I have written and papers that I've presented, and I will continue to argue, the revolution is not a break. We have kind of in our heads this idea that in 1789 everything changed and the armies that started fighting the wars that start in 1792, they were doing revolutionary things. But starting with that reform in 1755 to regulate the, the march step on until 1788, there's a whole series of regulations that define doctrine, including in 1787 creating the Combined Arms Division. The, the first in France, which will then go on to be the foundation of the Combined Arms Division in every army, except maybe the Prussian. Um, that process of applying systematic reason of, you know, Cartesian taxonomy to the military art and science produces the doctrine that the commanders and soldiers of the revolutionary Napoleonic armies then execute. They don't invent it. They execute it. Without that process, it looks very different. It's, they're probably not nearly as effective. And there's a great passage that I love to abuse, because uh, I quote it all the time when I write, by a Napoleonic officer who came later. He's writing in, this, in the, the 1820s. And he says that the regulations, so the documents written by the, the military philosophers in the 18th century, those are the grammar. And it's the grammar that the commanders construct their sentences out of, right? Which is our modern definition of doctrine. It's the, it's the guideline. It's the common language. Well, first, it has to occur to you that you need a common language. Then you've got to write the language. That's what, these, that's what the military enlightenment is doing. 
and then it's practiced by the, the soldiers of the French armies from 1792 to 1815, and, and well beyond, of course. Outstanding. Well, thank you very much for your time. It's been a great time uh, having a talk, so, like our days back at the University of North Texas. Yep. So you have a good, good rest of your day. All right. You as well. Thank you. If you like this episode, please make sure to check out our other podcast, Broad Gauge Gossips, where we talk to members of the Department of Military History faculty so you can get to know them.